Welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Church. Covenant Grace Church is one church meeting in multiple locations. This message was recorded at our Menifee campus. Father, as we look here in the Gospel of John, uh, and we specifically get to look here at the cross, we pray that you would help us to see the perfections of Jesus. Lord, we, we, we see here that this, the cross is about the glory of Jesus, and, and yet we're dull to it, Lord. So we pray you'd open our eyes, show us wondrous things out of your word, Lord. Transform our hearts, our attitudes, our desires. Transform our relationships, Lord. Help us to leave here new people because we have seen the living God. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, so we're going to be in John 18 and 19. How many of you guys have read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? Raise your hand. Okay, pretty good. I think it might be a requirement for heaven, so you want to probably get to that, uh, that and Pilgrim's Progress. But um, I'm glad a lot of you guys have read it because um, I'm pretty much going to ruin the story right now. So um, the story is basically about four children who end up accidentally getting into a world called Narnia. And they're in this world, and it's a fallen world. It's a world that's become under the, under the control of an evil witch, and there's a spell on it so that it's cursed. And one of the ways you know it's cursed is that it's always winter, never Christmas, is what they talk about. It's a cursed world. But there's a lion in this world, in Narnia, called Aslan, and he's the rightful king. And the inhabitants know that one day Aslan's going to come, he's going to defeat the witch, and free Narnia from the curse, and bring in Christmas, and then spring, and seasons. Um, these four children, they're, they're brothers and sisters, and one of them, Edmund, comes in, and he actually gets aligned with the evil witch. He, he's, he becomes on her side. And, and part of the reason he gets on her side is he's addicted to her desserts. So these things called Turkish delights, and uh, he must have them, you know. And so she's kind of feeding him these desserts, and he's really kind of a slimy kid. He's driven just by his own, like, short-term desires. Um, she also promises him that he'll have power. Uh, he'll, he'll be a king in Narnia. And so Edmund's this like, really despicable person. He only cares about himself. He's very cruel to his little sister. He's driven by his own appetites and short-term pleasures. And he's willing to sell out his family, and he's willing to sell out um, Aslan, the king, over these you know, desserts. He seems like a hopeless case, really. He's somebody that you kind of write off from the beginning that, like, this is just a bad person. There's really no hope for this guy. But what happens in the story is that Edmund ends up getting redeemed by Aslan. This majestic king lion ends up laying down his life in Edmund's place uh, to pay his debt. And there's this beautiful scene in the book where, where Aslan, this great, powerful lion, surrenders himself to the witch's army. And, and her army is made up of all these little creatures that Aslan could easily destroy, but he allows them to, to bind him and to muzzle him and to shave off his mane and to kick him and spit on him and mock him. And eventually Aslan holds still as the witch stabs him to death. And, and, and what C.S. Lewis wants to make clear in this book is that Aslan is freely volunteering for this. Aslan is freely volunteering to take Edmund's place, to pay his debt, to, to, um, to free both Narnia and Edmund. Because there was no way this army could take control of, of Aslan normally. Aslan was offering himself freely. And that's the same thing that John wants to do with this gospel. When he talks about the cross, he wants to show that Jesus Christ is freely offering himself. Okay? That's his intent in this. He wants to show us that on the cross, Jesus wasn't a helpless victim. He was a sovereign volunteer. Okay? And so Jesus is laying down his life as the true king for his people. And, and glory is being revealed at the cross. And I think that's something that John really wants to make clear, is that the cross is about Jesus' glory. 
which is a surprise to us because we see the shame of it. But he wants to show us it's about glory. And I'll give you a brief sketch if you look at 18 through 19 of what's going on here. The last couple months we've been in what's called the upper room discourse, which is the time in between when they have the Last Supper on Thursday night and when uh, Jesus is betrayed and arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, probably around midnight on, on that Thursday night. And some of the upper room discourse takes place in the upper room, but some of it's on their walk. As they're walking along, it's a short walk from the upper room to the Garden of Gethsemane. And you can see in verse 1 of chapter 18, they went um, across the Kidron Valley, and there was a garden there, and his disciples entered. So here, where we are now is we're in the Garden of Gethsemane. And over the next 18 hours, things are going to move really quickly. From about midnight of Thursday night to the evening of Friday night, Jesus, in about an 18-hour span, will be betrayed by Judas, arrested, interrogated. He'll be tried four different ways, in front of Annas, in front of Caiaphas, their high priest, in front of Pilate. Pilate will then send him to Herod, who was a, a Jewish king, and send him back again to Pilate. Then he'll be beaten and whipped and sentenced to death. In the late morning on Friday, he'll be crucified. He dies by 3 p.m. that afternoon, and by evening he's buried. I mean, things move very quickly from here on out, about 18 hours. But John has a very particular angle that he has on the, on the death of Jesus that he wants to get across. When we look through the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John... They are all obviously talking about the same events, right? And you can even make a harmony of them. Some don't include one part, another one includes that part. You see these charts in a study Bible where they harmonize the four writers and kind of put everything in there so you can see everything that happened. But guys, that's not the best way to read the Gospels. It's not the best way to read the Gospels to read a harmony of the Gospels. Because each writer of each Gospel wants to say something specific. And so when you take them and you put them all together and harmonize them, you actually lose what the author intended. John here intends to show Jesus as a king in full control of the situation, willingly laying down his life for his people. And so John doesn't include things like the, the prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane when, when Jesus is, you know, Father, if there's any other way. He doesn't include that. He, that's not his intention to, to talk about that. He doesn't include what Mark does. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You don't see that in, in John's narrative. Why? Because John wants to highlight a particular aspect. All those things are true. All those things happen. But John wants to highlight one truth about the cross, which is that Jesus is a king and that he's sovereign and that he's doing this of his own free will. Just like C.S. Lewis wanted to depict Aslan that way, that's what John's doing here. And that's why John includes all these references to a king. As you read through chapter 18 and 19, you see lots of references to a king. Um, 1833, Pilate asks Jesus, are you a king? And he answers in verse 37, you have said that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born, and this is why I've come into the world. Or when Jesus is talking to Pilate later on about his kingdom in verse 36, he says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would be fighting that I might not be delivered to you. But my kingdom is not of this world. He talks about his kingdom. Jesus is a king. Or in verse uh, 1839, uh, when Pilate is trying to kind of get out of being real slimy, trying to get out of his decision to, to condemn Jesus, he brings him out to the Jewish crowd, and he says to him, you guys have a custom that we can release somebody. Do you want me to release your king? You know, once again, Jesus is a king. Even while the soldiers are beating and flogging Jesus, there's kingdom imagery, right? You look in chapter 19, verse 1, they, they twist a crown of thorns, and they put it on his head, and they put a purple robe on him, and they bow down to him, saying, Hail, king of the Jews, and they strike him with their hands. Kingdom imagery. Um, a little bit later on, when Pilate brings him out again to the crowd, still trying to get out of doing this, he says, behold your king, in verse 14 in chapter uh, 19. 
And the chief priests cry out, we have no king but Caesar. And then finally, when Jesus is dying on the cross, Pilate has a sign put above him. What does the sign say? The sign says, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. And he's in this very public area where there's lots of streets coming through and people are traveling. And it says in verse, uh, chapter 19, verse 19, it talks about this sign and it says that it was written in Aramaic and Latin and Greek. And the chief priests were really upset about this. They said, don't put a sign on him that says king of the Jews. Put that he said he was king of the Jews. You know, they're really upset about this. And what does Pilate say? What I've written, I've written. So the final word, guys, over the cross of Christ is here dies the king. And so he's dying as a king. And he's, but he's not dying as a king that had uh, his power taken some, by some military coup, that he kind of got overpowered by his subjects. He's not dying as that kind of king. He's not dying as a king whose kingdom was torn from him by force. No, this king is not dying as a helpless victim, but as a sovereign volunteer. Uh, that word sovereign, I think we throw it around a lot, and we don't even know what it means. Um, what does the word sovereign mean? Sovereign means possessing supreme or ultimate power, acting independently without outside interference. So sovereign means you do whatever you want, whenever you want. That's how Jesus is dying. He's dying as somebody who's a sovereign volunteer. You guys remember in chapter 10 what he said about his death? He said, no one takes my life from me. He goes, I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. No one takes my life from me. Remember what he said to Pilate when Pilate's like, hey, you know, you got to work with me here. <laughs> I'm trying to get some information. I'd really like to get you off. You need to kind of work with me here so I can help you get out of this. And what did he say to Pilate? Jesus says, you would have no authority over me at all unless it was given to you from above. He's sovereign. He's a king. He's dying according to a plan. And that's why, too, guys, there's so much fulfilled prophecy in this. You wonder, like, why does John include so many um, glimpses of fulfilled prophecy? The reason is he wants to show that Jesus is dying according to a plan, a very tightly scripted plan. Um, John 18, 9, when the, when the disciples are allowed to leave and Jesus gets arrested, um, it says, this happened to fulfill what Jesus had said. Those whom you gave me, I'm not lost one. Uh, when Peter denies him, that's something that Jesus prophesied would happen, right? He said, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Um, even the cross itself fulfills prophecy. The fact that he was pierced in his hands and feet was something that was prophesied a thousand years earlier. In Psalm 22, it says, a company of evildoers encircles me. They pierce my hands and feet. He's dying according to a plan. Even his garments being divided. You know, in this, in this text, they, they come across his garments and they, they want to rip them up and stuff like that, but they go, ooh, this one's kind of nice. Let's cast lots for it. And so they, they cast lots for it. That's in Psalm 22 as well. A thousand years before Jesus, it said, they divide my garments and they cast lots for my clothes. Even the fact that he's pierced. So after he dies on the cross and they want to make sure he's dead, Normally, they would, like, break their legs, right? So they break their legs so that no longer can they breathe or hold themselves up to breathe. They break their legs. They came to Jesus. They didn't break his legs. They speared him in the side to make sure he was dead. That, too, was according to prophecy. In John 19, 36, it says, For these things took place that the scriptures might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones was broken. And Zechariah 12, 10 says, They looked upon whom they have pierced. Even the way he was buried, guys, also fulfills prophecy. And in Isaiah 53, verse 9, which was written 700 years before Jesus died, it said that they would make his grave with the wicked and a rich man in his death. And that happened. 
He's killed next to two wicked thieves, right? And then where does he get buried? In a rich man's tomb. It's a really weird plot twist for somebody like Jesus to end up in this tomb of a rich man. What's the point? The point is, is that all these evil people are following a script without knowing it. The Jewish leadership, the Romans, they're all unknowingly fulfilling every detail that King Jesus had planned out for himself long ago. And it's a plan to reveal Jesus' glory, to show his perfections. And some of you guys might be surprised by that. You might think, like, the cross about glory, that doesn't make sense to me. Jesus says that doesn't make sense. I mean, this is something that was designed over centuries by evil people to produce maximum pain and shame, wasn't it? It wasn't made to produce glory. I mean, for the Romans, crucifixion was the most inglorious way to die. This is like the most shameful way to die. I mean, you're dying naked, nailed to wood, you know, slowly over time. But Jesus saw the cross as his glory. If you look at um, John 12, 23, he says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Or 17, 1, he says, Father, the hour has come, glorify your Son. Jesus sees this as his glory. And guys, this is so cool, because only Jesus could take something that evil men had designed for centuries to produce shame and death and make it an instrument of glory and life. And only Jesus can do that. Only Jesus can see this thing that human beings have used for, for torture and evil purposes and use it for good. Think about your own life. Think about things you're going through and think like, there is no way this could be redeemed. He used the cross. He used the cross. And so how does a cross display his glory? There are countless ways. We could spend lots of time, but I want to show you from this text four ways that the cross shows his glory. And the first one is, it shows the glory of Jesus' bravery. Look at 18, verse 1. Behold the glory of Jesus' bravery. And we see that in his arrest. Look at 18, verse 1. It says, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, and he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers of the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. You guys might wonder, like, why do they need Judas? I mean, Jesus is a very public figure. You could grab him any time. He's always teaching. He's always making them mad. Why don't they just get him? What they needed from Judas is they needed to know where Judas, where they needed to know where Jesus was at night. They needed to capture Jesus away from the crowds. And so Jesus was a very public person. He's out there all day in the temple area teaching and stuff like that. But then at night, they would slip away to the Garden of Gethsemane, and that's where they would sleep. They'd sleep outside under the trees. You know, Jesus had you know, no home or anything like that. He was just sleeping out there with his people. And Judas knew where Jesus went at night. But even more importantly, Jesus knew that Judas knew where he went at night, right? And so Jesus comes very specifically and very intentionally to exactly the place where Judas would come to look for him. He's showing up. And look at the way they show up. They show up how? ton of soldiers, weapons, torches and lanterns. Why? What are they expecting? Yeah, they're expecting Jesus to either fight or flee, right? You bring weapons and you bring soldiers because you think he's going to fight. You bring lanterns and you bring torches because you think you're going to have to look for him in all the nooks and crannies. This is a full moon night that you would have been very easy to find unless he's hiding in dark places. That's what the lanterns are for. But what do they find when they find Jesus? Take a look at verse 4. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, 
came forward and said, whom do you seek? Can I just tell you that's like one of the coolest verses in the Bible? Listen to it. Jesus, and you hear what he's thinking, knowing everything that was going to happen to him in this next 18 hours, came forward. Jesus isn't hiding. He's not fleeing. He's not fighting, right? He's coming forward. Behold Jesus' bravery. This is bravery at its highest. Secondly, behold Jesus' authority. Look again at verse 4. It says, And Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said, Who do you seek? And they answered, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell on the ground. So that he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, I told you that I am he. So if you are seeking me, let these men go. This was to fulfill what was spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I am not lost one. Jesus interrogates them. I love this. He steps out. And all these, can you imagine how scary this is, knowing what all is going to happen? They're, they're coming up. He comes out of the shadows straight to them, and he says, what are you looking for? Who do you seek? Who do you want? Isn't that powerful? This is his authority, guys. And look what he says. They say, well, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I am. The original Greek text doesn't have he in there. He's just saying, I am. You know what he's doing? He's calling upon, he's using the divine name for himself. If you look back at John 8, he's using the name that Moses was given when, Jesus, when God spoke to him through the burning bush. Remember Moses, before he led the people out of Israel, he spoke to God through the burning bush, and he goes, you know, who should I say sent me? And God says through the burning bush, tell him, I am sent you. That's what Jesus is doing. They say, who are you looking for? Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I am And look what happens to them. They fall down. And this is a big group of people, and they all just tumble down. What's happening? They've been struck with the the glory of Jesus' authority. And Jesus asks them again, and and they answer again. And Jesus says, I told you I am. So if you're seeking me, let these men go. You guys realize that's a command? He doesn't say, hey, you know, it'd be kind of nice if you'd let them go. No. He's in control here. He says, if you're looking for me, you've got me. Let them go. He's commanding them. Guys, Jesus is in the driver's seat the whole time. No one takes Jesus' life from him. He has authority to lay it down. He has authority to pick it up again. Behold the glory of Jesus' authority. Thirdly, behold the glory of Jesus' innocence. And we see this in the trials, right? Jesus' innocence is shown in the trials that he has and the interrogations, four different ones over the night from midnight until late morning. What the Jewish authorities are really wanting to do is they're wanting to get Jesus executed. And they had a law for this. You know, if you committed blasphemy, if you made yourself out to be equal with God, you could be executed for that. Problem is, is that Israel is under Roman occupation. They can't execute anyone themselves. So they need to find a way for the Romans to do it for them. And for that, they go to the Roman governor, Pilate, and they bring him there. And, you know, Pilate's not interested in blasphemy. You know, this isn't a problem for him. So what do they say? He's saying he's a king. He's trying to take over. He's he's trying to overthrow Roman rule. They charge him with insurrection. And guys, the Romans, if you think about them, what are the Romans known for? We think back. What do you know the Romans for? Conquest. What else? Yep. The emperors, the Caesars, what else? The Rhodes. What else? Gladiators, right? You know them as people of great power. You know them also probably as people of great philosophy and wisdom. So these are powerful people. These are people with with philosophy, with wisdom. We know them too because of their rule of law. I mean, they're known big time for their rule of law, for the keeping of the Roman peace. Guys, 
Here Jesus is being delivered over people that are known for their wisdom and their philosophy and for their rule of law. And you might think, well, you know, Jesus is an innocent man. This is probably a safe place for him. Good thing he's away from the mobs. Good thing he's away from these kind of evil religious leaders that want to kill him. They've delivered him now to a guy, that, a culture that's known for wisdom and philosophy and rule of law and, um, and justice. He'll be safe in their hands, right? Not at all, right? When Jesus stands trial before this Roman governor, we see the total weakness of their wisdom and their justice. Pilate knows he's innocent. Pilate knows Jesus is innocent, but he's being pressured by this mob. He can't handle, you know, there being a riot in the city on his watch. He can't handle what the emperor might do to him if this happens. And three times, guys, Pilate says that Jesus is innocent. Look at verse 18, look at 18, verse 38. Pilate went back outside of the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. John 19, verse 4, Pilate went out again and said, See, I'm bringing him out to you that you might know that I find no guilt in him. Um, Chapter 19, verse 6, the chief priests and the officers cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. But Pilate took him out, saying, Take him yourself and crucify him. I find no fault in him. Pilate's in a bind. He knows that Jesus is innocent. He knows he's done nothing wrong, but he's also being hugely pressured by this mob. And eventually, because of the cowardice of Pilate, he relents and he he delivers him over to be crucified. Guys, never has there been a more innocent sufferer than Jesus. I mean, Jesus is the truly innocent sufferer. He's he's never sinned in his entire life. And I was thinking about, what would it be like to even be in the presence of a person that never sins? We have no idea. You know, I think you know some people that are pretty sinless or pretty righteous or whatever. We have no idea. We have no idea what it would be like to live with a person that has absolutely no sin and has never sinned. We have no idea in the way that a, a blind person has no idea what a sunset looks like. We have no idea. And here's this perfectly innocent person. And I was thinking about it and, um, you know, this, this, how the world reacts to innocent people. You know, we'd expect them to love innocent people, right? We'd expect them to love a person like Jesus. I mean, he's never sinned. Don't we always say that that's the thing that bothers us about people, that it's their sin, it's the way they mistreat people and stuff like that. Turns out, though, guys, that the world hates Jesus because of his innocence. I I was thinking about this week, and and do you know what the Greek philosopher Plato said we do with a perfect person? So the Greek philosopher Plato, who lived like over uh, about 400 years before Jesus, he said this, if there was ever a perfect person that the world interacted with, he said they wouldn't, rece- they wouldn't receive him. What they would do is they would scourge him, rack him, bind him, and they will have his eyes burned out, and at the last, after severing every kind of evil, they will impale him. This is 400 years before Jesus. And that word impale, a lot of uh, translators actually translate that crucify because that was a standard way of impaling people then. Isn't that crazy? This is a pagan Greek philosopher that said, you know what they do with a perfect person? They'd crucify him. And that's exactly what the world did with this perfect man. It was the the jealousy of the religious leaders. It was the fear of Pilate. But even more, it was the plan of Jesus. He was sentenced to death. Behold the glory of Jesus' innocence. And then lastly, behold the glory of Jesus' endurance. And we see this. This is really cool. We see this at the cross. This is where we see the glory of Jesus' endurance. Check this out. 19 verse 16. So they delivered him over to be crucified, so they took Jesus, and he went out. That's really cool, too, by the way. So they took Jesus, and he went out. He's willingly going, bearing his own cross to the place, the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him with two others, 
one on either side, Jesus between them. Jesus is going willingly. This cross that he was nailed to, I won't go into vast detail on this, but the cross was designed over centuries to produce maximum pain and shame. I mean, when we think about it, we think about the cross, what's happening at the cross is that you have a human being being nailed to wood, okay? Naked, in the public, just hanging there along the road where people are passing by and they're mocking him. And it was designed to, to give a very slow death, wasn't it? It was designed, it, there would have been nails through the wrists, through both wrists, and one nail through both of his feet. There would have been shooting pain from those nerves as they're being um, uh, pulled on by the, by the nails. Um, he would have had to struggle to breathe. You kind of have to push yourself up and down all day long to breathe because of the way he was hanging there. I mean, the end would usually come through heart failure or I mean, the brain's lack of oxygen or suffocation or shock. It was a terrible way to die. I mean, the more we kind of dwell on it, the, you know, a human being just agonizing on the cross, nailed to wood. But you know what John wants us to know about this? He wants us to, to, to remember that Jesus could escape the cross at any moment. Right? Isn't that what he said? No one takes my life from me. Jesus could escape at any moment. Jesus is staying there intentionally. And doesn't this guy's prove Jesus' endurance more than anything? I mean, it's one thing for those thieves who are nailed there, and they can't get out anyway. Do they have endurance? I guess. I mean, they're being killed. They have no control over it. But if you think about Jesus' death on the cross, um, he has to hold himself there. You realize that? I mean, this is a person with unlimited power. He's holding himself there. I was just thinking about this. How long could you hold your hand in a flame to save a friend? That's what Jesus is doing. He is holding his hands into the nails the entire time. And only when it's done, only when it was completely over, did he give up his spirit. Take a look at verse 28 in chapter 19. It says, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, I thirst. And a jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of sour wine on hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished, and he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. How cool is that? He gave up his spirit. Even in the moment of his death, he is in control of this. He gives up his spirit when he's ready to give up his spirit. He's sovereign the entire way. Behold the glory of Jesus' endurance. And guys, he did this for you. You guys feel that? He did this for you. He held his hand into the nails for you until it was accomplished. And, and why did he do this? He did this because we are all Edmund, right? And Narnia needs to be rescued, right? We are all Edmund. We, are all, we have all been driven by short-sighted appetites. We've all sold out our king. Like the apostle Peter, we've all denied him. We've all lived, ruled by our lust like Edmund. And so while we were still driven by our sin, guys, Jesus held his hands out into the nails until it was finished, until every debt was paid. And Jesus held his hand out into the nails also because Narnia is cursed and needs to be rescued. Guys, this world is messed up, right? This world is damaged. Jesus died on the cross, guys, not just so that we could go to heaven, but so that heaven could come down here. If you look at Revelation 21, the final state is not us going to heaven, a place designed for God. The final state is God coming down to earth, a place designed for man. Take a look at it, Revelation um, 21. You see heaven and earth coming together. You know, what is it that we pray? We pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're praying that his kingdom would come. 
Guys, do you ache for this world? You know, you think about the news when you see these things, do you ache for it? Do you ache for things like race-based hatred and division that we see? I mean, it's just blowing up around us, right? Do you ache for religious persecution, not just your own, but for other religions and things, persecution that happens? Do you, do you ache for the violence you see? I mean, you look around the world and you see the violence that's in the world? Like, life is treated cheaply, isn't it? You see people just being killed in mass around the world. Have you guys seen and been broken by the picture this week of that little kid, you know, in Syria? The little guy? There's something really disturbing about that in a, in, a, in a way. It's just the way he slowly kind of is dusting off his head and the blood on his face. You guys seen this picture? A haunting picture. And praise God for photographers, you know, to capture stuff like that and to make us see something that we knew was happening and then we see it, you know? Um, he broken for that. I mean, here's a boy that you know, pulled out of the rubble of his house. His, his name is uh, Omran. And we found out just in the last couple of days that, like, his older brother, who was in critical condition, died from that. So he lost his older brother. I mean, here's a kid that, like, can't sit in his house and watch cartoons safely, you know? Like, this is the world we live in. Do you ache for that world? I'll tell you what, guys. Jesus ached for that world. He held his hand in the nails to fix this world. You think about, like, I care about it. Jesus cares about it more. He held his hand out into the nails to make all things new. Remember when Jesus told Pilate, he said that his kingdom's not of this world? Well, it wasn't, but it will be. (laughs) Isn't that a cool thing? I mean, at that time, he was not going to stay and fight. He was not going to take over at that time. His kingdom is not of this world. But Revelation 21 and 22 say his kingdom is going to be very much of this world. He will come and he'll make all things new. He's going to take over, guys. So there's one day when all the kings and all the politicians will sit down and King Jesus will reign forever. Isn't that awesome? That's what we have to look forward to. The prophet Zechariah said of Jesus, he will make wars to cease. He will rule, and his rule will be from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. And even now, guys, Jesus' kingdom is breaking into this world. Every time somebody comes to trust in Christ, not just with words, but truly becomes Jesus' disciple, his kingdom advances here and transforms things and changes things. Guys, Jesus held out his hand to the nails to make this world new. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for that. Lord Jesus, we pray, come. Come and reign over this broken world. Come and make peace like your prophet said would happen. Make wars to cease. Bring peace. Lord, come and rescue you know, the kids of Syria and all around the world, Lord, that they, they can't even sit in their own homes without fear. Lord, we pray, come and reign, even now through your people, Lord. There must be ways that you would have for us to minimize a suffering, to be your people, to be your body in this world, Lord, to live out your kingdom here, Lord, to give little foretastes, little glimpses, little appetizers of your kingdom when it fully comes. Lord, mobilize your people. Show us how to live your kingdom even now. We pray in Jesus. You've been listening to the weekly podcast of the Menifee Campus of Covenant Grace Church. If you'd like to know more about Covenant Grace Church, visit us online at covgrace.org.